Are you worried or concerned about what your child's curriculum is at school? Are they being taught what you want them to learn? Well, today my guest is Dr. Carol Swain. She's an award-winning political scientist, a former professor of political science and professor of law at Vanderbilt University. In 1999, Dr. Swain was a tenured associate professor of politics and public policy at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Dr. Swain has lived a remarkable and inspiring life. As a young, extremely poor black child, she rose to become one of the most accomplished women in U.S. history. Her story, beliefs, and arguments are extraordinary, and regardless of your age or political orientation, you must hear this podcast. Most recently, Dr. Swain was a candidate in the special mayoral election in Nashville, Tennessee, where she strove to become the first African-American to serve as mayor in the history of the city. Okay, let's get into my conversation now with Dr. Carol Swain. Well, Dr. Swain, as I said before we started the podcast, you are one of my heroines. You're an extraordinary woman, and it really is a privilege for me to be able to talk with you today. So thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I always like to have an opportunity to talk to my fellow Americans and my brothers and sisters and just to be involved in these debates. Mm -hmm. Well, you do a great job and you're a powerhouse, that is for sure. I wanted, before we get into the meat of our debate, to have you talk about your past a little bit. You grew up as a very poor black girl. As a matter of fact, I think you said you used to sleep on the kitchen floor. And you went on to be extraordinarily successful in business in the academic world. And yet you're strongly against critical race theory. There are many people that would say, well, that doesn't make sense. So why are you so against CRT? Well, I want to briefly uh, tell your audience that I was one of 12 children born and raised in rural poverty in southwestern Virginia. Uh, we lived in a two-room shack for the early part of my life, and uh, I didn't uh, attend school very much. One year, we missed 80 of 180 school days, dropped out. Um, after completing the eighth grade, married at 16. By the time I was 21, I had three small children. People came into my life, they encouraged me. I ended up, ended up getting a high school equivalency, going to a community college, getting the first of five degrees, and I became a university professor. So that's the back story. And I have always believed in America and the American dream. And so um, for me, the civil rights movement was like a highlight in my life because at that time, Americans came together and they decided they did not want a country that um, discriminated. And so we passed a law that banned discrimination on account of race, uh, color, national origin, sex, or uh, religion. And, um, and that was a high point for our, our nation. And when racial discrimination was banned, it meant all groups. It wasn't, uh, the civil rights movement wasn't just for black people, it was for everyone. I oppose critical race theory because it's a violation of the Civil Rights Act, as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. It's divisive and it takes our nation backwards and it's also demeaning towards blacks. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I've always wondered because I remember the marches and Martin Luther King and, you know, how how many advances were made and learning that we were to live in a culture where we we didn't notice skin color, we didn't notice education, we didn't notice sexual orientation. And now it does seem like where we've gotten backwards, where we're told, notice it. Well, that's what they're saying. They, they don't want non-discrimination. In fact, they want discrimination on behalf of people that are classified as victims. And when you think about critical race theory and what it argues, it argues, you know, that racism is in the DNA of America, that all white people are oppressors, uh, that they uh, have set up a society to benefit themselves, that only white people can be racist, that white people must confess their racism, even if they are descendants of abolitionists, uh, people that never owned slaves, new uh, immigrants, they are all considered uh, guilty. So they have blood guilt on their hands and all minorities are considered uh, victims, even if they're descendants of free blacks who held slaves themselves or who came from some other nation who are not descendants of slaves, they're all considered uh, victims. And uh, the critical race theorists argue that racism is permanent. We also should be troubled because they have uh, critical race theory is like neo-Marxism. It has Marxist roots and postmodernist roots and everything about it is about destroying, tearing down traditional structures, whether we're talking about marriage, the family, uh, the educational institutions, the government, and we see the destruction right now. We're living through the destruction. And when I think about myself and my success, and I was successful because I believed in America. I believed in the American dream. I believed that if I worked hard, it would make a difference. And I had many role models, and those role models did not look like me. And so I was able to succeed because America was a nation where if you worked hard, you got an education, you could overcome the circumstances of your birth and you could do better than your parents. And that's what I did. When you have, if you could just give our audience briefly a background of where you've taught, because you've you've taught in very prestigious universities in the country. And if you could just name some of those, that would be uh, terrific, just if our audience doesn't know. Well, first of all, the audience should know that I never, ever in my life sought out to become a college professor. didn't know anything about the profession. And so the people that came into my life, and uh, these were Caucasians, you know, mostly white men. In fact, I think it was exclusively white men that steered me into academia. And I ended up getting five college and university degrees. Uh, I have a degree in business, one in criminal justice, two in political science and one in law, I uh, became a professor, took my first position at Princeton University. I uh, was given a signing bonus. I earned early tenure there. It normally takes seven years and most people don't get it at all. I went up in the third year, got it in the fourth year. um, And then later I uh, left Princeton and went to Vanderbilt where I was promoted to full professor. And so I've been tenured at Vanderbilt and Princeton, and I didn't just squeak through. I won the highest prize in the profession at Princeton, which is the Woodrow Wilson Prize, the highest prize a political scientist can win. 
and it's considered the career prize uh, for political scientists. And I won two other national prizes, and my work has been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I think that the only remarkable thing about my life is that I believed in America. I believed that if you worked hard, you could overcome the circumstances of your birth. And there were many people who encouraged me along the way, and they pushed me. And I can tell you that there were times when I was getting those degrees that I wanted to stop. I mean, I just wanted a job. And I had children at the time. I was divorced part of that time. It was a struggle. Uh, but those people let me know that they had high expectations. And I also uh, just experienced, uh, you know, as a young woman, uh, several times strangers came up to me and said, you know, you're going to be famous someday. There was nothing about me or what I was doing that that made any sense. But the most important factor was that people came into my life. They didn't look like me. They encouraged me. They pushed me. And they never told me that because I was black. I never felt that because I was black, I'm a female, I'm, a, I'm poor, I have children, uh, that I couldn't do something. I always thought that I could. And by the time I got to graduate school and I learned theories of oppression, I learned about Marxism. I learned all the things I couldn't do. It was too late to stop me because I had already proven what was possible. What you could do. Isn't that interesting that you had done this and you succeeded? And I, to some degree, feel that way as well. When I was in medical school in the 80s, I was, you know, there were 30 in our class of 90. And people said, did you feel discrimination? And I, I really didn't. And I didn't learn about, you know, a lot of discrimination against women until I was done. So it's interesting that you have the same feeling. So along the way, are you saying that there were a lot of Caucasian men and women, you know, other ethnicities that really came under you and said, go for it? You know something, I think that it's part of the American spirit that we want people to succeed. And when you see somebody hardworking, I don't care what race or ethnicity they are, uh, we want to help them. That's something in our nature that we want to help people that are working hard. And so, yeah, my mentors are encouraged me. They held high standards. But I was fortunate enough, I guess, to have an advisor that turned out to be conservative. And he exposed me to Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry, and a lot of the conservative black thinkers while I was in undergraduate. And, you know, maybe life could have turned out differently. Maybe I could have had a Marxist professor who uh, steeped me in Marxist literature and radicalism. And maybe I wouldn't have the Carol Swain story if that had happened, but that didn't happen. And there are a lot of things, if I look back over my life, that didn't happen. Uh, in the early part of my life, I worked in nursing homes. I wanted to be a nurse. I applied to nursing school. I didn't get in. You know, if I'd gotten in, uh, maybe I'd be a nurse today. But... For whatever reason, I have had the life that I've had. I was steered into academia. I was very successful there. I was not especially a good fit in the sense that I was shy most of my life. And that shyness didn't leave until I had a Christian conversion experience. And that was in my 40s. And I felt like that God um, impressed on my mind that he had given me a message bigger than me and that I should focus on him, uh, pleasing him. And once I took the focus off myself and whether people would laugh at me or call me crazy or, or call me names, I was free to speak, free to be bold, free to do things 
once I took the focus off myself. Mm -hmm. That's extraordinary. In schools now, uh, particularly public schools, they're instituting the teaching of CRT to young children, of course. Um, and it sounds to me that you would be a very different woman today if you had been taught CRT from the beginning of your early school years. So how do you think this is going to affect Caucasian, Black, Asian kids who are being taught CRT early in schools and throughout elementary and high school? Well, I think if I had heard that as a child, that maybe I wouldn't have put forth the effort. Uh, maybe I would still be in southwestern Virginia in poverty and be part of generational poverty. And I think that for racial and ethnic minorities, it really teaches them that they are inferior, uh, that they are victims and that they need white people to give them stuff as opposed to you intelligent people that work hard in America can accomplish their dreams. Uh, the narrative that I uh, received and, and I heard uh, was a narrative about America being a land of opportunity where if you worked hard, you could overcome the circumstances of your birth. And if you got an education, that was a ticket to go anywhere you wanted to go uh, that was the America that I learned about. And I think that for white people today, for white youth, they're experiencing shaming and bullying and discrimination from teachers that think they're teaching. They think that they're doing something good. They think all white people are blood guilty and that all white people benefited from racism. Uh, and not all teachers think that. And a lot of teachers know that this is wrong and a lot of teachers are pushing back. But um, the teachers unions, and the political left, and some Republicans too, have bought into this of white privilege. All white people are privileged because of the color of their skin. That is racist by themselves, saying that there's something about white skin that makes it superior you know, to other people, uh, and that white people have all this enormous power that they set up this society for themselves. That kind of racism hurts every child in America. And we are a nation where we know that it's wrong to discriminate against people because of the color of their skin or, or their sex or their national origin or their religion. These are things that we have rejected. We passed the civil rights law. Well, we're back to the point now where it seems to be um, acceptable. The government is saying it's acceptable to discriminate against some people. It's okay to discriminate against white males. Men have toxic masculinity men need to be uh, quiet, that racial and ethnic minorities need to be equal, equity, uh, not hard work where you have equal opportunity. All I wanted was equal opportunity. I just want a chance to work hard, prove what I could do. Well, equity says that all I need to show up and the government or the institution, the society is going to make me equal with someone you know, that may be more experienced than me, have greater skills than me, that's smarter than me. Uh, the government is going to create an artificial uh, equality. This is dangerous territory that is destructive for our society. And every American should be pushing back against it. And every immigrant who came here because they thought this was a land of opportunity. They thought this was a nation where you would have law and order. They thought that their children would get a good education. And they're finding out, no, there's more e emphasis on social engineering than there is on reading, math, language skills, history, science. 
Exactly. Where will it end? I mean, if you have kids who are being taught this, you know, in first and second grade, and now they end up in high school, what's the end point? I mean, is, is it that they want to get to the point where the government is taking care of the poor black people and it's oppressing the white people? Or what's the goal? I, I've never understood the goal. They, they bring it in, they tell you this, but, but then what do you do with it? Well, first of all, I want to say that this has been going on for a long time. It didn't just happen uh, after COVID and George Floyd. Uh, I would say that it became very aggressive uh, during Obama's first and especially the second term. So I would, I would pinpoint it at 2008 and especially after 2012, that's when it became uh, very aggressive. And I saw young people coming to college that were different. Uh, they came with all the answers because they had been indoctrinated and they would just regurgitate their answers and that would be acceptable to liberal progressive professors. And I think the end point is that people in America, regardless of their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their social class, their socioeconomic status, that um, they are being primed for the destruction of their nation, that they're being used as instruments and that it's not, you know, for the benefit of our society to create this utopia. It is to create a society where the government controls every aspect of our lives. But we know how communism and socialism works because we have the examples from other nations. Uh, the rules that they impose on other people, on the regular people, is not what they live by. And so uh, the America, that as we know it, with our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, some Judeo-Christian values that even if you're not a Christian or you're not a, a believing Jew or Muslim, that there's certain things that we know because you cannot know it because of the fact that we all have a conscience, that these things are things that they're trying desperately to neutralize and they want control over every aspect of our lives. And I think those of us who are older or those of us who are younger that can see through the agenda and there is an agenda, and it's not one to make Americans better off. I don't care whether you're black, you're white, you're Hispanic, or some other race or ethnicity. It's not about you. It's bigger than you. And I think ultimately, if we continue in this direction, America will fall if it hasn't already fallen. And I go back and forth because sometimes I feel like America has already fallen, that this is not the nation I grew up in. It's not the nation that I knew the Constitution that I believed um, would protect me, the institutions of government that I thought uh, would uh, stand for Americans, they cannot be trusted. And so we're in, in a new space, new territory. Uh, not quite. I'm not quite sure how it ends, but I can tell you that um, our nation was teetering on the edge of a precipice, and I'm not sure that it hasn't fallen over. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Swain. I need to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest today is Dr. Carol Swain. So what actually started CRT? It sounds by what you're talking about that it really wasn't about racism and blacks and whites? Was it rooted in something else and they just used 
you know, racial inequity as the topic they were going to use to um, achieve a certain agenda? Or do you think it, it really started out as a racial issue? Well, just like a nation had a birth date in 1776, CRT, critical race theory, had a birth date in the 1970s. A law professor at Harvard University, Dirk Bale, came up with the theory, and he could be viewed as the father of critical theory. But critical theory is only one of many different critical theories that are rooted in cultural Marxism. And many people are familiar with economic Marxism, Karl Marx and his economic theory that failed. Uh, but sometimes they don't make the connection that when Karl Marx's theory failed, uh, he had students, he had disciples, he had people that believed, you know, that he had come up with this brilliant theory that was going to usher in utopia, because they always promise utopia. And um, there are uh, names in history, you know, there's the Frankfurt School, uh, and these were uh, disciples of Karl Marx, but Antonio Gramsci was one of the students that came up with the theory of cultural hegemony. And he believed that one reason why Karl Marx's theory did not um, unfold the way he anticipated was that the culture, Western culture in particular, with its Judeo-Christian roots, that that and the institutions of our society stood in the way of this utopia. And so the, he and the disciples came up pretty much with a theory that they would gradually change the institutions. And so you had uh, the critical theories that come out of the cultural uh, hegemony. Uh, and the Marxists, you know, they were in Germany. They fled Germany uh, during the period of Hitler. And they set up residence at Columbia University, where they tra trained students. They turned out people that over time they fanned out across the United States. So critical race theory started in the 1970s. And then later, one of Derek Bell's students, Kimberly Crenshaw, came up with the idea of intersectionality, where you could have multiple sources of oppression. And, uh, and the more oppressed you were, the more moral authority you had. And that's why when they're doing the CRT DEI training, often um, they will say that, you know, if you're white, and if you're a white male, or you're a white female, that you need to shut up because the lived experiences of racial and ethnic minorities and marginalized people carry more weight than science and history and traditional forms of knowledge, that all of that's trumped by the lived experience. And I have to say progressive marginalized uh, people because someone like me, who is a black conservative woman who doesn't agree with the progressive agenda they're not so interested in my lived experience. Mm -hmm. No, they're interested in, in shutting you up. We're also dealing with, you know, the diversity training and ironically, accepting people from all race and background, sexual orientation, you know, gender identity and so forth, which really is ironic because it's the exact opposite of what we're doing. What we've seen alongside of the rise of CRT popularity and teaching 
is the acceptance of what we have now, which really is a fad, is the gender dysphoria, which results in children um, being transitioned from a girl to a boy, a boy to a girl, you know, and talk about um, denying science. When you deny DNA, I don't know what, where you go from there. Does that have anything to, I mean, the parallels are pretty remarkable. Do you think that that trend has anything to do with the trend that you're talking about? Well, it's a crit it comes out of a critical theory. And if you look at postmodernism and um, this whole movement, it's about destruction of traditional institutions, uh, such as marriage uh, and the family, the church, schools, the government. And so it's about tearing down, uh, yeah, it's about, they're, they're very much uh, interrelated. And just like you have critical race theory, you know, there's critical feminist theory, critical queer theory, critical colonialism theory. There are many different critical theories and they are rooted in Marxism. And the people that say that they want to bring us together, uh, that's a lie because everything they do is meant to divide. And what you find with companies they're being forced all across America, corporations, they bring in their DEI trainers, diversity, equity, inclusion trainers, and uh, critical race theory uh, trainers. That they call themselves sensitivity trainers. And what they do is disrupt the environment, whether it's the workplace or the school place, they disrupt the environment. Uh, they shame and bully white people that don't go along with them, and they force people into silence and then my racial and ethnic minorities who have, may have been, uh, you know, just well-adjusted, part of the team, everyone working together towards a common end, they try to create grievances and friction there. And I think that um, we want to live in a society where the dignity of every individual uh, is respected. And so uh, I believe as a Christian that all men and women are created in God's image and that we are to love one another. And I don't uh, care about a person's uh, sexual orientation or what they you know, do in their bedrooms. And it offends me that we have the LGBTQIA, I forget all the alphabets, that they wanna force us you know, to get into their bedrooms and to agree uh, with their lifestyle and you may recall that back in the 1950s, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, and all of that stuff was considered abnormal sexual behavior. I can remember in the uh, 1980s taking a sociology course on deviant behavior. And now the behaviors that we once considered deviant are considered mainstream, and the only people considered deviant are people that are uh, heterosexuals that don't agree with their lifestyle and with the LGBTQ uh, gender we were told you know that they wanted gay marriages and that was going to stabilize that community and uh, and there was one set of arguments used to push it on Americans and then as soon as that passed we had the transgenderism not just them pushing adults but this thing that's happening in our children with them introducing kindergarten kids uh, to the transgender agenda and causing them to question whether they're really little boys or girls and uh, encouraging children to keep secrets from their parents and also engaging in gender uh, transitioning 
uh, where you have, you know, some hospitals and organizations where if the parent, whether it's adoptive or biological parents, uh, you know, present a child, that they are able to put that child on puberty blockers and things that are experimental. Uh, they are able to approve, in some cases, uh, permanent life-altering uh, treatments or the sexual reassignments. Uh, this is nothing but child abuse, and I think that every American, you know, whether or not you are heterosexual or gay, you should be standing up and fighting for our children because what is happening is criminal. And those colleges and universities that are pushing gender reassignment of children that um, pre-adolescents, I mean, they should be shamed. And those pharmaceutical companies that are pushing drugs on children, uh, they, there should be consequences. Mm -hmm. I agree, and it's remarkable to me how many prestigious hospitals around the country are buying into this and who are actually doing surgeries on adolescents, you know, castrating them, removing breasts, giving them hormones and so forth. Absolutely, to me, it is child abuse. And, you know, if you would have said 10 years ago that we would bid it, you know, where we are right now, I would have thought there's just absolutely no way, you know, that could happen. And interestingly enough, I think that when homosexuality became, you know, out of the closet and we talked about it and accepted homosexuals. And the idea was the thinking is, well, this is a genetic issue. And so, you know, but now with transgender, it is anti-genetic. And so it's anti-science. It's anti-science, but, but yet if genes can't determine anything, then they can't determine homosexuality, heterosexuality. I mean, in a way, you, you can't have it both ways. We only have a couple of minutes, but I'd love to hear, you know, you've been very outspoken about your Christian faith and the Christian conversion. How has that played into your beliefs and political views now? I mean, it's made me uh, bolder, and I... I <laughs> made a transition from being a lifelong Democrat to being an independent for a few years. I'm now a Republican, not because I believe Republicans have all the answers, but because they're the party that comes closest to my Judeo-Christian values and principles. And my faith makes me bold. People ask me where I get my courage from. And so I've started telling them that Jesus is my superpower and I do believe that I have a superpower and that um, that some people have to be bold enough to speak out and that if I can encourage other people to stand up by my own speaking out, that's what I want to do. But I also believe people need to be educated and they need to know that this whole idea of gender and the fact, you know, that they argue now that you can have an unlimited number of genders, that started in the 1950s by a guy at Johns Hopkins University named John Money, who probably made all the money. He was appropriately named, I guess. But yep. we need to know that those are relatively new ideas, that these are theories that university professors are paid to sit around and come up with theories. And the more absurd, the more value. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. And I know about that and, you know, the research that's been going on because they're absolutely theories. But what's disturbing to me is the theories are causing child abuse, and so on and so forth. Dr. Swain, this has been 
wonderful. You are just, you are, um, I can tell God is a superpower in your life. Something's a, a superpower because you're amazing. And uh, I just thank you so much for teaching us today, for t advocating for kids, to educating parents about what they need to know and do in order to advocate for their kids in schools. And God bless you. And I, I can't wait to see what God has in store for you over the next 10 years. Well, thank you so much. And you keep up the good work. And for people that are listening, be encouraged. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Carol Swain. You must follow her and check her story out. She's written numerous books and is one of the most brilliant and articulate women in the United States today. Let's go over my points to ponder. One, pay close attention to what your kids are being taught in school. Let's face it, parents with young kids are exhausted and they're worried about the political climate, global warming, sex ed in schools, and hundreds of other things. But parents, do your best to pay close attention to the character of your kids' teachers, their personal views on many things, and then ask what the curriculum they need to use for social studies and sex ed are. Don't act angry or threatening if you don't like your child's curricula, but let their teachers know that you are very astute when it comes to what your kids are learning. Two, listen to both sides of the arguments when it comes to your child's education. Sadly, many young parents get one side of the issues. Don't do this. As hard as it is to listen to opposing views, do it. Understand what others are saying and why. Why do teachers want to teach CRT? Why are they told to teach sex ed that is far too aggressive and traumatizing for your kids? Then you'll be on stronger ground when you let your views be heard. Always discuss concerns for the curricula your kids are being taught in a kind manner. Three, stand your ground when it comes to knowing what your kids are being taught. When my kids were in grade school, every parent knew what math, English, art, etc. was being taught. This was important because as a parent, I wanted to be in a position to help my kids. So ask what your kids are learning in math, English, and books your kids are studying. Regardless of state laws, you need to see what your kids are learning and don't be timid about asking for curriculum. They're your kids. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Carol Swain, for joining me on the show today. You can find out more about Dr. Swain when you go to carolmswain.com. That's carolmswain, S-W-A-I-N.com. Be sure to follow Dr. Swain on social media as well. Just search for Dr. Swain in your internet browser. Now let's recap my three points to ponder. One, pay close attention to what your kids are being taught in schools. Two, Listen to both sides of an argument when it comes to your kid's education. And three, stand your ground when it comes to knowing what your kids are being taught. Friends, if you need help, encouragement, or answers to any questions about your kids or your relationships with them, go to meekerparenting.com. I have courses, tips, blogs, and more to help you. And if you know a dad who needs encouragement while you're there, check out my brand new course, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters Masterclass. And always remember, great kids are raised, not born.